So when I say skirts of fire and everything, everybody go like crazy. Because we, we, we want people to think it's like, real, like having a real good time, okay? <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to I Don't Get It. This is a podcast about performances in Edmonton. My name is Fonda, and we are proud to be part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This week is pretty special. We got another live episode coming to you from a panel that we did at the Skirts of Fire Festival. The panel was on their main stage play called The Blue Hour. But before we get into it, I do want to point out that the play, and thus our discussion on the panel, covers a number of challenging subjects, including pedophilia, sexual abuse, suicide, religious content, and also some definite spoilers for the show. So, um, as such, your discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this discussion here at Skirts of Fire. Today we're talking about the main stage show here at the festival, The Blue Hour, which won the Alberta Playwriting Competition in 2017. My name is Fonda, and I am the producer of I Don't Get It, which is a podcast about performances in Edmonton. The podcast is part of the Alberta Podcast Network, and we are especially thrilled to be here in the ATB Arts Barns today, because incidentally, the Alberta Podcast Network is also powered by ATB. So, yay sponsors. I'm with some fantastically qualified panelists here today, um, including the playwright of The Blue Hour, and I'm going to introduce each of them. So, our panel, I will start with, to my left, Michelle Van Zare won the first place in the 2017 annual Alberta Playwrights Network competition for The Blue Hour. In 2012, she was invited to take part in the Citadel Theatre's Playwrights Forum with Colleen Murphy and director Brian Dooley, where she developed and worked on this play. And Michelle has written and written and directed several acclaimed Edmonton Fringe shows. And Michelle has also worked with uh, with Skirts of Fire in previous years with two of her other plays, Dina's Playhouse and Little Hooks, were uh, were workshopped and got stage readings through Peep Show. So this is Michelle. Say hello. Hello. All right, and next on the panel is Candace Fair, a social worker and co-chair of the Family Advisory Council with Child, Adolescent, and Family Mental Health, um, short form known as CASA. In 2014, Candace and her family lived personal experiences within the mental health systemic care, and it was formed through this journey, um, and it was through this journey of lived experience that the CASA Family, family Advisory Council was formed. Its members consist of unique and diverse families who are passionate, about creating positive and sustainable changes in our mental health systems. So welcome, Candice. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, next to her is Claire Gallant, Vice President of Community Services with the John Howard Society, which works to prevent crime and to help people affected by crime by promoting an awareness of crime and its impacts, encouraging greater responsibility within the community for crime prevention, and by providing services to people who are or who have the potential to be in conflict with the law or who have been victims of crime. So please welcome Claire. And next to her is Andrea Moen, a retired judge from the Court of the Queen's Bench. As a judge, she was given a seven-month leave to study the impact of high uh, the impact of high conflict on the brains of children. And during this time, she learned a great deal about how children who are exposed to adverse childhood experiences can grow up with many difficulties, including criminal behavior, physical ailments, mental health issues, addictions, and many other adverse results, including how these experiences can be carried from one generation to another. So please welcome Andrea. And Nikki Bernier-Singh graduated from the U of A in 2010. For the past nine years, she has been working at the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton as the Director of Community Engagement and as a member of the public education team. Nikki is a trained sexual violence crisis intervention specialist and a certified first responder facilitator and mentor facilitator for the Alberta Association of Sexual Assault Services. Thank you, Nikki. 
And I have a last minute swap in panelists here. Um, we have Christine McCourt-Reed uh, with us from the YWCA. And because she was a last minute swap, I don't have a bio for her. So maybe she can say hello and, and a little bit of something about what you do at the YWCA. So I'm the communications manager at the YWCA. There are so many themes that were so relevant to the work we do uh, uh, at the YWCA. So I'm very excited to dive right into this panel. Uh, thank you. Great. All right. So I would like to start each of us with um, just a very short starter question about, um, maybe not for you, Michelle, but for everyone else. Mm -hmm. What were your initial reactions to the play, either first when you read it or seeing it today? Gut reaction. Go for it, Candace. <laughs> oh, I thought life, I looked that way. <laughs> um, I, I, I was hit with just a lot of emotion there. Um, uh, I love when I can look at things from a personal lens as a mother, but also uh, from my social work lens as well. And so I felt that uh, throughout the play, that's what I was doing was, you know, going between empathy uh, for family, empathy for for systems, for mm. all that kind of stuff. So it, yeah, it just, yeah. It's, it, I should have probably watched it before today. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, um, Annette uh, came and visited me about a year ago asking if we'd be interested in participating in this. And so I've had uh, a year to think about what this is going to feel like, and it didn't prepare me at all. Um, it, is, um, it is always a difficult thing, no matter how long you've worked within this sector, um, and when you've worked with individuals that have been impacted by crime on both sides of that. Uh, it never gets any easier. Um, so I hope we'll be able to get to some of the hopefulness and some of what happens beyond. And uh, so it's an intense, it was an intense afternoon. My husband shared his afternoon with me and I said, how are you doing? He says, well, it wasn't what I was expecting to do today. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's kind of a heavy, but yeah, mm -hmm. good to be here. Yeah, Andrea. Michelle, congratulations. Um, that was a deeply moving play, and I had actually read it before I came, but it was nevertheless really deeply moving. And it, from my experience, it really touches a lot of bases about where we're at in our society and, and why this happened. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I also had the opportunity, I think I've been chatting with Annette for about a year or more as well, and had the opportunity to read the play ahead of time. Um, and as someone who has no background in the theater, I was very excited to see how um, the script would sort of translate into this live production. And the story was obviously very impactful and the characters were so powerful, but I think um, the thing that stuck with me the most, I saw it on Thursday because I knew I was gonna cry. And um, just like a great deal of discomfort. Um, both for like the, the dynamic that unfolds between a couple of the characters, but also um, in my work doing public education for the community, I, I know that um, sometimes people still look at a dynamic like that and view um, that, that type of relationship, and I'll use some air quotes there, in a way that's really problematic. So I was very, um, yeah, struck with a lot of discomfort and very uh, much looking forward to unpacking what that's about for me and likely for lots of other folks as well. And I just have to echo that. Uh, I w it was very powerful, and I have to say kudos to the entire team. The production quality of everything in this play was tremendous, um, which only heightened the the powerful emotions, I think, that we all felt as part of it. I, like you, I wept very openly uh, throughout throughout the play and was very uncomfortable through most of it. And so at one point when someone, you know, a few seats down from me said, oh, no, I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Oh, no, don't, don't go there. Don't do this. But uh, these are important issues and, and real issues and we need to talk about them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Michelle, um, maybe for people who may, uh, may be listening and have not seen the play, can you give us a brief synopsis and, and, and what inspired you to tell this story? Um, well, brief, I don't know, because uh, Annette and I always talk about this. It's, I think it's a um, complicated story, uh, and it's hard to just sort of break it right down, but I, it's a small town in Alberta, um, 
1947-48, but I think all the, the topics that are talked about are current, absolutely current today. But for me, it was about how, mostly for me, it was how women mostly uh, uh, have no voice. And I felt a lot of these women in this play did not have a voice. And the men who are trying to be good people struggle in even that toxic environment as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That doesn't really describe the play, sorry. <laughs> it, it does. <laughs> Not the plot. <laughs> sorry. That's all right. Well, I'm sure we'll get to some of the plot points as we move along. Um, but uh, I wanted to, for, for each of the panelists on the, on the other side of you here, I wanted to ask about um, a little bit more about your line of work and how that influenced how you viewed specific characters in the play. Um, maybe we'll start on the end with you. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so actually, I, leading up to this, did not read the play, but I did some historical research on what the YWCA was doing in Edmonton um, around the time of the play, so 1947, 1948, and the work we were doing for uh, a lot of work around displaced um, women and families uh, or, or women without partners um, in the community. Uh, so I, I immediately thought about um, the, the family without the father figure uh, and and supports that they wouldn't have necessarily had in a small town uh, had, had they been in a bigger center they might have had um, more access to things like that trauma a lot of generational trauma uh, we we still see that today in our counseling center um, dealing with trying to break that cycle of, of um, complex trauma and I think each generation just adds to that and then just really supporting uh, women and, and girls and families I, 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 my heart just breaks about everything in this play um, mm -hmm. there's just there's so much that could have been done for every single character um, in a different time, in a different place. Yeah. And Mickey? Um, so I work at the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton, um, and that absolutely impacted the lens through which I, I viewed the entire play. Again, the, the dynamics that unfold um, in general, but um, I, I found myself even in the questions that you had sent us, Fonda, just like hyper fixated on this dynamic that unfolds between the pastor and Bonnie. Um, and so even just hearing from you, Michelle, that the, this, there's this broader theme about, you know, women be, not having a voice. I'm like, oh, yes, of course. I didn't even, you know, that wasn't sort of like front of mind for me. Um, and so... Yeah, to, to, to be totally um, direct and upfront and transparent, uh, most of which um, most of which I hope to explore and to offer in this conversation focuses on the dynamic between uh, Pastor and Bonnie, um, them as individuals, but then that, that dynamic between them as well. Um, so yeah, that's sort of the perspective that I'll be speaking from. And uh, I'm really uh, interested and excited to hear the other perspectives that the panelists have to bring. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I formerly, I'm now retired, was a justice in the Court of Queen's Bench, and we did uh, all majors of, major areas of law. Uh, the two that probably are relevant here are family law and, uh, and criminal law. And the thing about criminal law, and as a judge, I was charged with sent not only finding people guilty, because we had guilty pleas, but also uh, but, but charged with sentencing um, the people that were in front of me. And I always found that really difficult, um, more so as I went along and understood more about the brain and what happens to children who are subjected to what are called adverse childhood experiences. In this case, the young man, uh, just from the play, I got two or three of them. One of them, poverty. Um, he was being neglected physically. Emotionally, he was being neglected emotionally by his mother, by any definition that we have. Um, and um, uh, what was the other one? But, but, you know, there were about three of them that I saw in the play. And, and I would see mostly young men, by the way, in front of me. Very seldom did I see a woman. Most of them were young men between the ages of 18 and about 25. Um, and I know a lot of people think that they're evil. They're not. They're just human beings like that, that young man in the play today um, and, uh, and, the, and the pastor. And when, I, when you start pulling, it's really complicated, right? Yeah. When you start pulling it all together, I think we have to sit back and say, 
why, what, what are we doing in our society? What is, was it, what can we do in our society to stop this? Because we shouldn't be putting all those people in jail. That's all I'll say for now. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I'm glad I'm sitting beside you. <laughs> As a John Howard, uh, Edmonton John Howard, we, we support, obviously, we support a significant amount of individuals who have gone through the criminal yeah. justice process and have worked through their, their sentencing and, and have moved back into the community, some very successfully, but not always that's true. Um, so I, I connect on a, of, of multitude of, of, of levels. One, as a parent, I would do or want to, I don't know if I would, but I'm, I'm human enough that I can't hold myself to the truth, but I don't know what I would do if I was in that circumstance and, and one of my loved ones was violated in that way. Um, on a personal level, as a parent, what would I do in, as a parent of any of those people? Um, I have two, I've raised two adult men and they're both very good men, but they weren't always. Um, I have uh, personal experiences. Um, you can't work in this field where you're looking at people that have committed crimes and are victims of crime and not have one story for each one of those characters. So I don't know that there was one that I related to um, more than another because um, I can place myself in all of them. And I think for myself, and from the perspective of the organization that I'm representing today, is that really my perspective is what is one of our core values, which is that crime happens within a community. And it is within that community that we need to resolve that, whatever that might mean or how we can move forward through our community. Um, so that's primarily the direction that I'm going to take it from. Mm -hmm. okay. Uh, so I already alluded to the fact of having personal lived experience and then also professional as a social worker and community, but I really am here today to represent uh, family voice. Uh, and so for myself, I found uh, a lot of dissection going on for the mother in the play. Uh, yeah, there were moments um, very much so of neglect, but uh, in, in, in representing the spirit of family, I want to also acknowledge the moments that the mother did um, try her best to connect with her children. And, and I think that that's a really important message that <clears throat> we need to remember, um, that more often than not, just like the young men standing in the courthouse uh, who are not evil, um, these children or youth are not procured necessarily from evil families either. Uh, we all have a story and we all have a journey. And throughout the play, Michelle, I just that was one thing. I was like, what is, I want to know more about mom. What's her story? What's going on for her, right? Um, there's strength in that woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank so, yeah. Michelle, as you were writing the play, were there any characters that were particularly difficult for you to tackle and try and get a hold on? Yes, absolutely. The pastor was um, really hard to write. And when I started writing the play, I was really struggling with writing him as a human being because I hated him at first because what he did. And, um, but as the play went along and I worked with my dramaturge, I realized that I couldn't portray the pastor in that way, that I really had to go and really try to understand him, but he was by far the most difficult character, right? Mm -hmm. um, for, for, the, for the rest of you as well, um, how do productions like this help you do your job? What effect and impact do you think it has to audiences who may not have lived experience? I think it humanizes it. it I, I think just speaking to what you're, you're saying about having a difficult time writing the pastor, you still made him very human. You made him real uh, and multifaceted. And to realize he's a human and he made some really bad decisions. Um, but on the flip side of that, you know, he was kind and loving at the beginning with his wife, you know, so you got to see all the dynamics of it. So I think in, in the facets probably of all of our work, it, it really uh, humanizes and, and shows that these things really do happen. Um, this story, I think, is not an uncommon story, especially for that time. I think it happened more often than any of us would care to admit. Um, and, and so it's still happening, unfortunately. Um, and, and that's, I think, important for people to understand as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the one representation we don't have on the panel is someone from the church. So. Oh. <laughs> I thought about that a little earlier. <laughs> um, 
Who, anyone else want to weigh in on that? Yeah, Andrea. Yeah, I think plays like this help the public to see the complexities. You know, I mean, even the pastor, I thought I heard that he was sexually abused by his uncle. He was. I heard that too. Yeah, okay. Uh, and I went, yeah, okay, now that explains a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, that that what, what this play did for me was to show the multiple levels, and I think for the people who were watching it, and I saw a lot of heads going up and down, um, that watched it get a deeper understanding and how it helps the court, and I'm not speaking for the court here, but how it helps the court is that hopefully the way these things are portrayed in the media um, or the way people will think when they read something portrayed in the media is, well, you know, it's not as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Because it, the media tends to report on the criminal activity in a very simple, very a black and white kind of way, and it just isn't like that at all. And this play wasn't either. I think for myself, what I appreciate the the play because it provides opportunity for conversation. But I think what I appreciate more is that we're having the conversation. Because if we hadn't had this conversation to unpack and maybe think about what might have been happening for all of those characters and all of these people that are sitting here and listening, if we didn't have this conversation right after that, what would have we each gone home with? Without any further conversation, we would have left with our own views of whether or not it was all the, the pastor, he was the bad guy in all of this, or the young girl, she was very much in love with him, and she was visibly pursuing him. So who is in, who's more at fault in that? Nobody, nobody neither one of them is. Um, but we can leave with our own views of, of what we experienced in this play and watching it because we're all trapped in our own perspectives, our mm-hmm. own experience, and what we've worked through in our own. But having the conversation beyond that where we're actually sitting here and we're thinking about what have we experienced and how do we move that forward into the community in a more healthy, positive way, I think this is what makes it better, not necessarily the, the subjects need to be discussed, but if there's no venue to sort of talk it through in a, in a pro- productive way, mm-hmm. we can get stuck still in our own ways of thinking, and sometimes it, that's not good. Yeah, yeah, it, it opens the door. Nikki, I think um, uh, it's sort of a good segue into something that we discussed a bit previ- previously about the hazards um, that you can come across in telling stories like this, in particular around the language that gets used even right. describing the play, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I have so much to say. Sorry, my brain is going in a million different directions. Um, yeah, at the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton, we've had the great pleasure of getting to work with a few different theater companies as they've uh, approached or tackled or, or talked about the issue of sexual violence in some in some way. And whenever we're deciding to work with uh, a theater company, um, we want to make sure that um, the story that's being told is you know accurate. It's not reinforcing uh, myths or misinformation about the issue of sexual violence. We want to make sure. Um, that while we're addressing the issue in like a really honest way, it's still not like gratuitous or unnecessarily triggering for people. So we're often looking for um, uh, the story itself, but then also how it's communicated um, to people who will come to see the play to the audience to make sure that it's in line with our core values at the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton. So non-victim blaming, passing along like accurate, inclusive information, that sort of thing. Um, And I think that when um, art theater is able to address the issue in a way that's really thoughtful and informed and respectful, um, it's a really great way to explore the nuances of a very complicated issue. Um, This is a great example, right, of being able to explore some of the nuances. We've also had the pleasure of working with um, Concrete Theater. I don't know if any, probably lots of folks are familiar with Concrete Theater. Concrete Theater, they do um, age-appropriate sort of education for youth and children in the community, and uh, we partnered with them for the last two years on a, a play around the topic of consent. Um, so it was a really age-appropriate and effective way to teach youth about the topic of consent through storytelling, which is something that our education team can't achieve, right? It's so powerful to be able to explore these things through story, through a narrative, by connecting with the characters in, in a really human and empathetic way. Um, to go back to your piece about um, 
how, how these conversations can inform um, or how they, they shape the way that the public thinks about these issues. Um, one of the things that was challenging for me when I was reading the script and, and trying to, um, I think I was having a conversation with Annette about sort of my general reactions and, and, and I found myself sort of stumbling over wanting to talk about what, what unfolds between um, the pastor and Bonnie, but being really hesitant to refer to what happened as a relationship, right? When you look at the ages of these people involved, right? She's 15, I believe. She's yes. 15. Yeah. Um, so when you look at, at, at this person's age, as well as the dynamic between them, so he's not just an adult in the community, he's a pastor, he's a religious figure, he's in a position of power, trust, and authority to her. So based on those two pieces alone, there cannot be sexual consent between these two people. Um, and so to call it a relationship, and, and I think this is some, something that people do intentionally or unintentionally when we're talking about an adult who's used abusive behaviors towards a minor, oftentimes people will use the terminology of like a relationship. And I think what we're often doing there is maybe trying to find our own comfort in talking about these things, even downplaying or minimizing the abusive dynamics that are at play. Um, the word relationship really does alleviate, I think, a great deal of responsibility. Um, that the pastor has in terms of this dynamic, and that's something I'd love to dive into a little bit more. Um, the other thing that I really wanted to note, because Bonnie is 15, um, at the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton, we do education around the issue of child sexual abuse. And um, I can tell you that the general public cares a great deal about the issue of child sexual abuse. However, when you start to talk to people about the experiences of youth who are 14, 15, 16, like in that age range where they're still minors but starting to become adults, um, that's when you see people start to lose just a little bit of compassion for young people. Um, we start to responsibilize them for the abuse that they've experienced. And so I think it's really, uh, really important to be mindful of the language that we're using when we're talking about what's happened between these two characters. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Candace, I wanted to ask about um, your ex the experience of the play and how it relates to the family and how the community plays into the the, the dynamic that exists with Bonnie and Jonah and their and their mom, um, and of course then leads them both into very horrible things. Um, how did how did you feel about like the community and how it and how it worked with this family in the show? Well, first I thought, <clears throat> again, the portrayal of all the different family units and their own stories um, were wonderfully done. Um, but going to uh, Jonas and Bonnie and Mum, yeah, I mean, again, I think Michelle already said, you know, the play was set in the, in the late 40s, but many of the issues that were brought up there can be transferred to uh, our present day life. So when we look at that family nucleus of a single mom and two children, um, they were struggling to eat, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And so do we still have families that struggle to eat? Yeah while trying to maintain mental health, et cetera. Yeah, we sure do. So that to me was very uh, poignant as well. Um, and then, yeah, all the different complexities of the characters and how they impacted you know, the family that Bonnie was in um, really, really spoke to me in senses of like the dynamic of, of, of the mayor and Jonas and that one healthy adult mm -hmm. in your life, um, which putting back on my social worker hat, I, I say this uh, all the time to families that I work with, is just takes one healthy adult. Um, and so even though in the play, Jonas landed himself in some hot water, obviously, for his actions, um, he still had that one adult that was, was attached to him. And um, yeah, so for me, that those were two of the major big moments in the play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I'll point out that the role of the mayor was played by Robert Benz, who I just adore in yeah, everything that I see. Yeah, we have some we have some amazing theater talent in Edmonton and that's he's definitely one of them. Uh, the, the whole cast for the show was actually yeah, just um, brilliant. Um, Michelle, I wanted to ask a little bit about um, like shaping the play, some of the more sensitive scenes. What measures were you taking in the rehearsal process and in development for um, making sure that the, the cast was okay with what was happening on stage? Um, well, I guess, uh, first of all, like when I was writing it, I was 
try to be very careful about doing anything that was too salacious or voyeuristic uh, between Bonnie and Pastor until the very end by the by the river mm. when he he ends what they have or what they you know I don't want to call it a relationship anymore because now I'm scared. <laughs> But I appreciate that. I will never call it that again. Uh, no, I just, I, I was really careful because I didn't want it to be salacious and voyeuristic. And I wanted to make sure that even though I was showing the humanity of the pastor, that it wasn't a proper thing. It wasn't a right thing. It was a terrible thing mm-hmm. that, that had happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was very careful about that. And then Annette and I, when we were talking about, before we went into rehearsals, we were talking about bringing on uh, Samantha Jeffries, who is an intimacy choreographer and a fight choreographer. And I said, God, if we if you have the money, you sh- we should. Mm-hmm. And I think she was like, yeah, let's try this. And, and I'm so glad. I'm sure, pretty sure Annette's glad, too, that, we, that she came on. Because, oh my God, was she great. Uh, right from the beginning, she was there and uh, it, just talking about what the boundaries are and what you're comfortable with and how actors are often trained to say yes to everything mm. right or they're not good sports they're not good actors and uh, so she brought all of that up and she choreographed every intimate scene every fight scene and then she would come back and then one of the actors in the show who played the pastor's wife Bonnie Ings she took over as um, I'm not sure what her job was but what the fight director thank you oh it's like fight captain or dance captain, right? Yeah. Fight captain for the podcast. After, after the rehearsal process, the captain comes in and oh, does the stuff, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> I never knew that. Uh, but yeah, so just the fact is that they kept on top of that all the time and uh, made sure that everybody was comfortable with what was happening, which I think was really important for this piece, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't, uh, Amber, go ahead. Sorry, I just had a question when we're talking about um, getting prepared to. to um, come up with this production and having not read the script like some of you did. I'm really curious to know about the casting. I think the cast was tremendous. Everyone was so well cast. One question I have though, was Bonnie actually a black girl? Because that would really affect the dynamic of a white mother in 1947 small town Alberta coming to town yeah. with a, you know, with no partner and a black child and a white child. Yeah. Um, that that None of that dynamic or theme was really a dressed in the play. So I'm wondering if that was an intentional casting choice, if the character actually is, or if it, if it was... Um... Uh, I didn't write it uh, like that, but when Annette and I were um, auditioning uh, young women, uh, um, Helen Belay was the absolute very, very best yeah. actor, and uh, we had she came back a couple of times, and she's freaking luminescent, and uh, we cast her. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask a question too? For sure. So... All of, all of us are in that profession where we are um, constantly involved in these listening and hearing and experiencing vicariously sometimes what's going on for the people we're sitting across. And I know for myself, I have staff that I need to be responsible for and I care for, and so I'm constantly checking in on their well-being. Do they need to debrief? Are they doing okay? Are they going any through any of that? Did you find that any of the actors were experiencing any of that? And did you need to sort of support them as they kind of got brought into a circumstance that they may not necessarily have been familiar with or may have triggers towards? Um, I think that would be sort of more a question for Annette, to be honest. Um, Yeah. And Annette is here. It's good. I'm, I've got to go to the next event, but I, I still have time. Um, yeah, that was part of the reason why we had the intimacy choreographer. On the very first day of rehearsals, uh, she did a workshop with everybody where uh, we would uh, do exercises around, um, instead of just uh, touching someone, we'd say, can I place my hand here? you know, on your shoulder. And the other actor would say, sure. Or actually, could you put it down closer to my elbow? Just as an example. And uh, in terms of the heavy material in, re- in, in rehearsal, right from the first day, we talked about creating a really safe space uh, where everybody felt safe to be able to be as vulnerable as they needed to be for the role, for the play. And so we really worked hard at keeping a, a warm, rehearsal hall and a safe rehearsal hall. And at no point did anybody feel uncomfortable. Um, If they had, we would have stopped and we would have had a conversation. But I think because we set the parameters on the first day, everybody was in a really good place. 
And plus, you always made sure they had somebody they could talk to that wasn't necessarily on that immediate team. But if they had a problem, they could go. There were a series of people they could talk to. Yes. Which I think it's important, Good. too, yeah, outside we, of the rehearsal. Yeah, our safe space policy, we, we, which we had just recently developed working with Svon, which is the sexual violence advocacy and advisory network and um, uh, so with with so that if people did have problems like many people that they could talk to outside of our production team too if they wanted to go to a board member or something like that yeah. thanks to Annette Lozell skirts of fire artistic director <laughs> for jumping in on that one um, I, f I find the idea of um, particularly theatrical production and consent very interesting because I feel that it's I'm worked in theater for years and it's something that is it's only recently really starting to be looked at um, very closely. And so I appreciate hearing about the processes that you've gone through. Um, yeah, that's great. Um, what? So for the panel again, um, what do you want people to know about real life circumstances versus what happens in the play? Um, I think that there were a couple of specific instances um, that I had talked with Nikki about and with you two um, as well about uh, just what what the expectations are around um, some of the things that happen in the play. Like, do all these relationships end up like this or in, you know, in violent crime? <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, maybe Nikki, do you want to start on that sure. one? Sure. Um, so one of the things that I, I so I read, I read this, Play first, and one of the things that I didn't get in my first read through was the the pastor disclosing at the end of the towards the end of the play in his I think monologue I don't know theater is that the right yeah. term yeah his monologue <laughs> that he had um, experienced abuse at the hands of his uncle and and I and I knew in his um, in his monologue that he had experienced uh, physical and, and emotional abuse psychological abuse but I didn't catch the piece that he had also experienced sexual abuse as well um, and so I think Annette had clarified uh, that for me and then and I and I think that came through much um, clearer it, it was something I picked up on much clearer in the play itself um, and so that was something that I, I wanted to take a moment to address um, because although that's the case for lots of people who experience abuse, that's certainly not the case for all people who've experienced abuse. And, and this storyline is um, not inaccurate in any way, but it is sort of unintentionally tied to one of the most common myths or misconceptions about men's experiences in particular. So lots of people, um, believe that if um, a man specifically experiences abuse as a child, that he will go on to offend against others in the same way, specifically sexual abuse, that it's this direct kind of causation. Um, we hear that myth come up a lot in our work. And so I wanted to just take a moment to acknowledge that um, th there is a piece and there is a thread in there that's that's accurate, but there is um, the myth is harmful for for male survivors of sexual violence in a really specific way. So when you look at um, research around people who have used sexually abusive behaviors, lots of them do have experiences of abuse in their childhood, whether that's physical, emotional, sexual abuse, neglect. Um, some type of abuse in their childhood. However, when you look at the even sort of like broader pool of survivors of sexual violence, um, very few of them go on to reoffend against other people. Um, and so it's important to acknowledge that there is some correlation there, but that is absolutely not the same thing as causation. Um, and and when we're looking at you know, the dynamics of using abusive behaviors. That is outside of my, my wheelhouse, and I'll acknowledge that um, the causes and contributing factors to someone using abusive behaviors is really complex and something that I can't speak to. Um, but we do want to make sure that the general public uh, knows and understands that just because someone experiences abuse as a child does not mean that they are destined to go on and hurt others in the same way. And this can negatively impact survivors of sexual violence of any gender, but we do see this um, uh, particularly impacting the experiences of men. Lots of male survivors of childhood abuse don't disclose their experiences to their friends, their family, their community, because they're so afraid um, that their loved ones will look at them as potential offenders, right? And there can even be that like internalized fear that like, what if I'm damaged or broken? What if this is my destiny because I was hurt in some way? Um, it can just cause so much pain, unnecessary suffering. And, and when people aren't able to disclose their experiences and get the support of their friends, family, and community, it makes it really challenging for people to heal. So we want to make sure um, 
Yeah, as I've said, that, the, that people understand that just because somebody has had an experience of abuse in their childhood does not mean that they are going to go on and automatically hurt somebody else in the same way. Mm-hmm. Candice, do you have anything to weigh in on that front? Thank you. I'm learning so much from you, Nikki. Um, yeah, I, I guess I, I, I sit here and I wonder, what, what would the play have been like if Bonnie had her baby? Mm. And, I, and I go back to the words kindness and community and, and again the play in the set in the late 40s and here we are 2020 and I just wonder you know, if Bonnie was still in a small town and chose to have this child how would community engage Bonnie how would community support Bonnie how would community use language um, to speak about Bonnie and her family and the people that she loves and where she comes from. And I, I'm, I'm stuck at the fact that it might not look any different mm-hmm. uh, in late 40s than it does now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, again, we've mentioned where some uh, empathy falls off for some of our youth at certain ages, and, and these young individuals can become parents themselves, and, and uh, you know, Again, what would the play have looked like had Bonnie have had her baby? Yeah, that's that is something to chew on for sure. Um, Andrea, I wanted to ask you about um, the outcome for Jonas. Uh, what do you what do you think as as a former judge? What what's going to happen to him? What do you think? Actually, the law says what's going to happen to him. We don't have capital punishment in Canada anymore, thank God. Um, but he will get, um, because he'll, I think it was pretty clear, I don't think the evidentiary piece would be difficult, he will get life in prison. So he is 14 years old. Um, his background led him, I mean, you're absolutely right. When you look at statistics the way you just talked about it, not everyone who experiences this is going to be that. But when you look at the body of evidence and the likelihood that something is going to happen, there's a stronger likelihood that something like is going to happen with a child who has been exposed to ACEs. And there's intergenerational trauma. I think that's well established now. It's actually built into every cell in our body. Um, If you've experienced trauma as a child, there's a good chance that things are going to happen, like you're going to have a shorter lifespan, bad health health outcomes and things like that. And so I look at that play, um, because I know what's going to happen to him. Now, mind you, he's a youth, and we've got the youth justice system, and he might very well um, get through that and not and and not face um, the life imprisonment, uh, but he could be moved up to an adult court. There could be an application, and what I see in society is a lot of vengeance, and so there might be a cry that he was mean and nasty and ugly and evil, and I used that word advisedly earlier because people that was the context. You know, there was that heavy Christian context where things were good or bad and nothing great in between. So I look at the play and I say, what can we talk about in terms of public policy that would change if we really looked at the causation here for some of this behavior? And I call it causation, not because it's if this, then that, but because when you look at it, in a broad context, and the science, the brain science supports this. Um, with the mom, I mean, what if she had guaranteed income? What if she had a guaranteed income? It's a proved thing, by the way. We've proved it works better, but she would have had more dignity. She probably would have treated her son better because she would have had more, they would have certainly been eating, you know. So from a public policy perspective, what can we think about? And there are lots of them that came out of that play Mm -hmm. to me. Claire, I wanted to ask about um, how, what would like how would the John Howard Society do something do things for Jonah? What would what role might they play in his life as he moves forward? Yeah, if if he was sentenced, um, we actually have. Uh, I I don't work in residential, and the, that's not my area of responsibility. I work only in the community program, so I'm more involved when somebody is out and back into the community. 
and working with victims, but uh, I do know that Jonah could have been brought to one of our um, mandated treatment centers for youth um, and would have received uh, therapy. Um, his education would have continued. Um, he would have been integrated back into the community and been inv invited to participate in the best way that they were, he was able to. Um, he would be challenged on some of his, his thinking patterns that allowed him to believe that that was the right way to respond and to look at how that could be done differently. If he was um, moved to an adult court and he was charged in an adult court, uh, we, we have a residential facility for sex offenders. Um, they're all men. Um, that are, at the, are housed at that particular in, um, residence. Um, and they too uh, receive a significant amount of support while they're there. They work through uh, what we call kind of a, a criminogenic kind of how, what gets you into the place where you need to commit a crime in order to feel safe or comfortable again within your own life. And so we work them through that. And so we've by no means are experts in that field, and I'm certainly not an expert in it. As it's not my area of expertise, but as, as leadership of the organization, I understand that they've had significant amount of men go through that program who are able to say, I was wrong, and I do deserve to be accountable for my behavior, which is a big value for us. Accountability is very different than um, judgment in the mm -hmm. sense that judgment is a lifelong thing that you have to kind of work with, whereas if you um, are taking accountability, that means owning your behaviors and working to behave differently. And we've we've seen, and there's many studies out there of significant amount of supports. I think you touched on it as well, Nikki, that once a crime is not a once a crime is not make a criminal, mm. um, and so the, those repeat recidivism kind of things can be those stru structures can be broken. So those are things that is a very high value for us as an organization. An mm. organization we believe that people can change, um, and with the right supports and encouragement within the community, that can happen very positively. Yeah, um, just shifting a little bit towards the work that you do, Candice. Um, how would CASA be there for Bonnie's mom after all of this? <laughs> That's such an interesting question. Um, well, if any of you have ever had um, the experience of navigating mental health systemic care, uh, particularly in a caregiver role, uh, it's very exhaustive and very uh, confusing. Um, so I can only just imagine that Bonnie's mom would first of all start off like most of us, not knowing where to go or who to turn to. Um, also in the play, just quickly, Michelle, I, I, I picked up that maybe Bonnie's mom herself um, had some mental health issues, like perhaps some um, uh, hysteria, like uh, moments of manic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, she does, okay. but I didn't want to um, label it. Yeah. I just wanted to put little elements in uh, because I don't think she would have been diagnosed or anything. Okay. Definitely wouldn't have been diagnosed back then. Okay. She wouldn't have had the money, the time, uh, the knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't want to make it the reason that she does everything she does. I just wanted to add that element because I think that is something she definitely struggles with. Yeah. Okay, thank you. So, yeah, awesome. So when we look at stats and, and we look at adults alone, <clears throat> one in three adults will struggle with mental health. Um, CASA is a child, adolescent, family uh, organization. Uh, but as caregivers, we're coming in again with minimal knowledge. Um, we're in high states of crises. Uh, our brains are, are overloaded as well. Um, and so when we look at that and we look at accessing um, services such as CASA, it's not necessarily just the youth or the child that um, is needing uh, to learn more about themselves. It's the family unit as a whole. And so CASA does have um, about 20 different programs that run from infancy all the way up to age 17. Um, and they're able to take uh, the individual or the child or youth on, on a therapeutic journey, but also in, invest in the family as well. Um, some of the things, though, that probably I would say would remain the same um, is uh, the barriers that we face as families to access the care and the services that we need. Um, unfortunately, in the Edmonton area, um, if 
Bonnie's mom was taking her, let's say for some mental health um, issues or concerns, she would be looking at a one to two year wait minimum um, because of the socioeconomic factors in uh, their lives. Um, mom would not, I perceive, have the money to pay for that and so um, you know, we will seek that help, but then sometimes we will sit. Um, as co-chair of CASA's Family Advisory Council, that was one of the barriers that we recognized in 2014 when we began. And I am very happy to say that CASA is listening to family voices. And while our families are sitting um, and waiting for services, because our hands are tied in that area, uh, we are using some very creative um, initiatives to reach out to families and be able to allow them them to know that there is community support while they wait. Um, yeah. yeah, silence is a killer, right? Yeah. Uh, Christine, you wanted to jump in? Yeah, so I just wanted to echo as well. I definitely picked up on the mental health. Uh, and that's one of the things we, we really work on is mental health for women so that they can support their children and their families uh, and kind of break that cycle um, and, and learn how to have safe and healthy spaces. Uh, YWCA Edmonton prides ourselves on actually being the only true sliding scale mental health counseling facility in Edmonton. Uh, we have found our research has indicated that there is value. People do place value on paying a little bit. So our sliding scale uh, used to be from free all the way up to full full price. Uh, we have found that with that value piece, um, the minimum price, minimum suggested price is $5. We do certainly have a, a triage process so that people who are in immediate need of, of mental health supports can get it as soon as possible. There is unfortunately still a wait list, but, but, but not as long as, as you're indicating. Um, so we're, we are able to, to kind of help, help those women and families. And I just think that family, there's so much we could have done for them, uh, their family too. And, and the pastor's wife, I'm like, when you leave him, come see us. We can help you. We can do these things. Yeah. And, and I just want to clarify that the wait list times um, aren't necessarily CASA-specific. They're mental health. Yeah, right. Uh, systemic, right? So um, that's wherever you are reaching. Unless, again, you are fortunate enough to have the means to pay for private therapy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, i just make a plug, though. Just, um, I mentioned John Howard is also in a partnership with the Family Center and Pride Center, SAGE, and several other organizations in the city. So we've um, advocated, um, sorry, advocated um, to receive funding from the United Way. And the Family Center has received those dollars. And so we're able to provide, as partners, we're able to provide walk-in counseling. Um, it's one, one time, well, it's not one time, but you can come several times, but it's a solution-focused um, walk-in in the moment, um, and there's sites throughout the city, so that's also a resource that um, is available to the families that, and that we, it is a sliding scale, mm -hmm. um, but majority of our clients that come in um, are receiving services for free. Wow. So there are additional yeah. resources. Yeah. Mm, I feel like I've learned a, a ton from all of you today, um, and also from the beautiful play, Michelle. Um, I wanted to ask, in, as a sort of closing, what can we do to make sure that the end of this play doesn't happen? Um, there, I think there are many answers that you could all sort of think on for that, knowing that we've seen the struggles right from, like, with the family and then the the sexual abuse plus then suicide and finally murder and violent crime. Um, so what can what can we as an audience and as a community um, be doing to recognize things or or to push people in the right direction? What what can be done? <laughs> well the the first thing you can do if you notice something, don't just pass it by. Speak up. Uh, be supportive as much as you can. And I think that's across the board for mm -hmm. mental health supports, for, for abuse supports, for any of that. That's the number one key, is just don't turn a blind eye to that. Um, I think as we've addressed through this discussion, these are still, every issue that has come up in this play is still prevalent in society today, 80 years later, unfortunately. However, what has changed is there's a lot more supports in place now than there were then um, across the board for all of these types of issues. So um, there are, there is help out there for anyone who's experiencing any of these type of things. People may not be aware of it, they may not know where to turn, and so that's where you as a person, what, what can we do to change the cycles if you see it happening? step up, step in, say something, do something. Don't just be a bystander because then you're just complicit in allowing to, it to continue mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
Um, this question around sort of like prevention in the general sense made me think of uh, two two things I wanted to talk about. So um, the first piece is around you know making sure that people who use um, problematic or abusive behaviors are held accountable. And I like your distinction between accountability versus like judgment and shame and locking someone away. I think I'm, I'm happy to hear that there are agencies in the community that provide support for people who've used abusive behaviors because whether we like it or not, they're a part of our community. They need help. They need support. They exist here even if we don't want them to. Um, they, they are deserving of support as well. But I think making sure that people are held accountable for their behavior is really important. And this stuck out for me because at the end of the play, you, you also, in the dialogue between the pastor and his wife, you come to learn that this is not an isolated event, what's happened between the pastor and Bonnie. Um, and, and Michelle, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like um, a similar type of situation has happened in multiple towns. He's been, he's been moved. He's moved. I think uh, one of the things about the pastor is he was struggling and has struggled probably 20 some years uh, to repress the feelings right. that he has. So I don't think he actually ever, ever did touch another okay. girl, but I think it got dangerous and he would have to leave. Yeah, and I think that that's really powerful because it, it made me think of, you know, if. I was wondering whether he chose to leave or whether he was asked to leave to a new community, which we know um, has happened in, in certain you know uh, religions um, where where there is knowledge of the abuse that's happened, and rather than confronting that directly, um, the person is moved, right? So it made me think about um, systems uh, in which you know. Presumably, somebody knows about the abuse that's happening, um, and it's sort of easier to ha have like a head in the sand approach or to look the other way, and to just reflect on how, yeah, sometimes systems, sometimes people, sometimes communities create environments where abuse is allowed to continue, or in this case, where the abuse um, has escalated. Right? Well, it's interesting because I was just thinking about something you said about people lose their empathy or their understanding when the, the, the girl is 14, yeah. 15, yeah. 16 years old. And when this play happened, or when I wrote for 1947, 14 was the legal yeah. uh, age of a consent. Yeah. So his w first wife, or his wife, sorry, uh, Hannah, she was quite young when they got married. She was like mm. 19 or 18, and he was probably in his uh, early 30s. But because it was allowed, exactly. because it was legal, yeah. he was able to, to mar get married. And so I was very careful not, she, in my mind, she's a child, absolutely. Yeah. But I want to go back to what it was and what people yeah. think about 14, 15, 16-year-old yeah. girls. Something that's been going on in the news right now yeah. that's been really bugging me. So Absolutely. And I, too, was thinking, left thinking a great deal about, like, oh, so back in the day, maybe the age discrepancy, the fact that she was 15, maybe she was an adult. But anyways, it, I just think I kept coming back to a similar idea, like looking at the things right now that might be socially acceptable that do in fact cause a great deal of harm towards uh, people who are on the receiving end of those behaviors. Um, so in terms of holding him accountable for his behaviors, I think that was really important. I also just have to say, it took me a minute, but in thinking about the play after seeing it and reading it, there were so many vulnerabilities that bon Bonnie had that I think were, um, whether it was intentional or not, exploited by the pastor. She's new to the town. She's very young. Her family's poor. She's desperately wanting to leave this place and go somewhere else. And he's sort of the way in which she can achieve all of these unmet needs. And I, I felt as though. Um, those needs were really being exploited by this person who sort of saw an opportunity and maybe because of his position saw an opportunity to to exploit those needs. Anyways, I'll leave that there. The other piece that I wanted to acknowledge was um, in terms of prevention, being proactive, just making sure that people who experience sexual violence and abuse are believed, supported, that they're able to receive the, the love and support from their friends, family, and community. We know that healing from sexual violence is absolutely possible, but one of the biggest determinants in people's healing journey is the type of support that they receive. And so that's where I think everybody in our community is sort of called um, to learn how we can best respond to disclosures, how we can best support survivors of sexual violence in a way that will positively impact their healing journey moving forward. Okay, there, there are sort of two major things that I think we can do. One of them we're going to hear about from people here who, who are dealing with a situation as it is now. But I think the other one that we need to really start thinking about in our society is that our children are our society's children. They are not the, the belongings of families. Mm -hmm. And if we start thinking that way deeply in our society, we'll start doing things 
with pregnant women, like the old v, v, uh, VON, yeah. um, going in and being with, with new, newborns or, or with women, so they can start learning about, put the supports in place, good education for little, little ones and for families, and how to do this so we don't end up where we ended up in that play. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. For myself, I think what we're doing here is a good example of what we need to do moving forward within, within our community and society as a whole. I think it's very easy for all of us to look back and point a finger of what each person should be doing or what should happen. But I think what we need to really reflect on, and I have to do this every day because I don't always sit with people that I respect and honor based on what I read in a file, and that I have to sit down and say, you know what, I have issues still, and I've been doing this work for a long time. So each one of us has to reflect on what's going on for us when we experience these things, when we hear about these things. And what is it in ourselves that we need to be able to accommodate, change, adjust, move, whatever, because as each of us who are a little bit more aware than we were four hours ago, um, we have another step of communication that we get to share with the other people. And so we need to reflect on our own perspective and how we view what's going on with that individual, because it is far more complicated, um, and we may never get the full story. And so what I think we need to do is self-reflect, own what you need to own and move forward in terms of communicating, sharing, and asking questions so you have for the opportunity to listen to what's really going on. Great. Thank you. Okay, well, I'm going to pull us out of our heads and go into our hearts for a minute because this word community, community, community keeps coming up. Um, there's one line in, in the play that struck me, and I didn't realize it did until we're unpacking this. And uh, it was um, the mayor's wife, I apologize, I can't remember her name, but she says, Christine's over there wailing again. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if any of you caught that, mm -hmm. but to me, that is a synopsis of what we don't need in community, right? So again, in that play, here we're all the spiritual, you know, religion-focused, and yet were the pies and the casseroles being delivered to mom's door? Was anybody wondering what was happening with the 13-year-old boy while the mother was distraught and in despair? Did community step up to help? I didn't see that in this play. Other than the mayor, yes, the one healthy adult who did align with Jonas and went and saw his sister's body with him. But that's what I keep coming back to and that's what I use my voice as, as part of the council on CASA Family Advisory, is that family voice matters and we can only be accountable for what we know, right? And so when we're shown kindness, when we're shown you know, that our mistakes don't make us who we are, um, it goes a long, long way. And I've shared already that I'm a social worker by trade, and I'm blessed to have had this lived experience with my children. The unfortunate thing is, is that I work with families who I need to resource every day. And walking the walk is a lot different than handing out, you know, the, the piece of paper or the phone number. You have to make sure that where we're aligning families for help, that's where they're gonna get help, right? So again, in that play, I just, it, I'm just as I'm sitting here, I'm like, wow, you know, there's preserves, Saskatoon jam, right? Bet you that mom could have used a whole basket of that. And that's what I mean when I come back to community, come back to heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Michelle, any closing thoughts? Or? I don't know. What do you want to hear? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I, I do think that that was quite a, quite a good note to leave it on. Um, so thank you all. Thank you to our panel, everyone. And thank you for being here. Uh, again, to, thanks to uh, Annette Lozelle and Skirts of Fire team um, for helping us put this all together. To our technicians. Yay. Yay. Um, and our panelists again. Uh, you can listen to this and all of our episodes at idontgetityeg.com. Um, so please enjoy the rest of Skirts of Fire. Go see some shows. Thank you.
Taproot Edmonton is a source of curiosity-driven stories about our city, cultivated by the community. It's a new way to deliver local journalism with a focus on high-quality, long-form stories, plus weekly curated roundups on news and local topics like media, city council, food, business, music, and arts too. You can sign up to become a member and get more info at taprootedmonton.ca. P.S. We highly recommend the Arts Roundup, written by yours truly. You can sign up at taprootedmonton.ca to get it in your inbox every Thursday. This episode of I Don't Get It is brought to you by Unit B Coworking. Unit B is a multi-company co-working space located in the historic McKinney Building in downtown Edmonton and is focused on helping people pursue their passions. Join a tight-knit group of freelancers, startups, and established organizations all dedicated to getting things done. Along with desks and offices, Unit B offers members access to its podcasting studio, meeting spaces, kitchen, Wi-Fi, and the usual office amenities. Book a tour today at unitb.ca. All right. Well, that was that. Thank you to everyone um, who was on the panel. Thank you to Skirts of Fire for inviting us to do this. Um, it was really interesting. Uh, and uh, yeah, like what a what a what a tough play to talk about. <laughs> um, in any case. All right. What's happening? Noises Off is running at the Mayfield Dinner Theater until March 29th. And as you like it, the show that uh, Brianne and I really loved is running at the Citadel until March 15th. Um, as we previously mentioned during the panel, Skirts of Fire runs um, through various locations all the way till March 8th. And starting up next week, The Children, uh, which is done by Wildside Productions as part of the Roxy Performance Series, uh, that uh, runs March 10th to 22nd. And also the return of Mercury Opera's La Boheme. This time they're doing it at the Citadel Theater in the Rice Space. Um, so we remember how much we also liked that show from last year. Seeing opera in an intimate space is pretty cool. That runs March 5th through 14th. And um, also I'll put an early note in that the Edmonton Flamenco Festival, uh, their main stage performance, uh, Sevilla in Blanco y Negro, is running um, one night only at the Winspear Center on March 13th. Um, and if you know me at all, you know I loves the flamenco. So yeah, that's um, that's all we got today, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. And uh, yay, new Canadian theater. Yeah, go see some shows. Bye. I Don't Get It is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or check us out on albertapodcastnetwork.com or the CKUA radio app. I Don't Get It is recorded on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta in the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast studio. Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli, and you can find more of Ghibli's music by going to ghibli.bandcamp.com. I Don't Get It is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blinoff. 